Pushkin. Hey, it's Noah. I want to tell you about a podcast from New York Magazine. It's called Pivot, and it's hosted by New York Magazine editor-at-large Kara Swisher and NYU business professor Scott Galloway. Every Tuesday and Friday, Kara and Scott break down the major news stories of the week and take a sharp look at how they're changing the way we communicate, vote, shop, and live. You can expect razor-sharp insights, bold predictions, and a declaration of the week's big winners and losers. Kara and Scott banter and bicker at the speed of your Twitter feed, and the show is as funny as it is informative. So subscribe to Pivot with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway for free in your favorite podcast app to get new episodes automatically from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. This time, we have a special episode for you, which we recorded live on stage here in Boston in front of an audience of more than a thousand people. My guest was none other than Malcolm Gladwell. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker, the author of best-selling books, including Blink, The Tipping Point, and Outliers. He's also the co-founder of Pushkin Industries, the company that makes this podcast. Malcolm just published a new book called Talking to Strangers. We started there. Thank you all very much for coming. Uh, thank you, Malcolm, for coming to Boston. Um, I want to start by just asking you about the person to whom this book is dedicated. Yes. Namely, your father. Yes. The book starts with a very sweet anecdote about him, and then somewhere buried in the middle of the book, like at the beating heart of the book, is an actually deeply moving and a little bit shocking story Yeah. in which he figures. What led you to think that he should be the, is he the inspiring figure for this book? Well, he was, uh, I, I lost my father in 2017. So he was clearly on my mind. Um, but he, well, I, you know, I, I opened the, he does in some way inspire this uh, book because I tell the story at the very, very beginning of the book of um, when my parents would come to Manhattan, I would put them up at the Mercer Hotel, which is the most sort of celebrity ridden um, hotel in New York. And it's a joke because my parents, no two individuals know less about celebrity culture than my parents. <laughs> and so it was always a kind of inside joke on my part to think of them mingling with rock stars. A joke and, you shared with no one but yourself until yes. now. <laughs> a and true then, inside joke. <laughs> so one time my dad's staying there and I asked him what he had done in the previous afternoon. He said, oh, I had a wonderful conversation uh, with someone in the lobby about uh, gardening. And he said the only problem was that people kept coming up to this man and asking him to sign bits of paper and taking his picture. <laughs> and so I said, well, do you know, who was it? He said, oh, I have no idea. Um, and it was clearly <laughs> some, this being the Mercer, some massive celebrity. And I've spent yes. the last, this was 10 years ago, the last 10 years trying to figure out who it was. Because um, <laughs> you can be a pretty big celebrity in the Mercer Hotel and no one will come over to you because it's not cool to do yeah, that so in the Mercer Hotel. So first of all, there's several key facts here. One is that, it's in the part, there's a part of the Mercer that's only open to guests. And this is where they were. Mm. So right away, the fact that own, other celebrities were coming up to this celebrity <laughs> right. is crucial. <laughs> like Second, a meta-celebrity. It's a meta-celebrity. <laughs> Second is, my father had a, all I can say is, he had a clear preference for talking with other Englishmen, mm. A, and B, for people his, his own age. So I think it's someone born in the 1930s in England who liked gardening and he was a major celebrity. So <laughs> that allows us, so I've been asking people and someone recently said, I think a very good guess, Michael Caine. Ah. Right, can, you can imagine people approaching Michael Caine. You can imagine Michael Caine talking about, apparently he's a big gardener. Huh, that, I was, that actually surprises me. And, my, and also kind of lower middle class as my father was. And you know, when Brits congregate outside of England, they do the class thing instantly. And then when they realize- They also do that inside of England. Yes, exactly. yes they, do. <laughs> they just do that everywhere. <laughs> they might do it more aggressively outside of England. <laughs> but like once they discover they're from the same narrow slice, like I once saw my father, he was chatting with someone who was from the same town in Kent that he was from. And my father, without, they hadn't done the class thing yet. And he told, it was a woman, he told this woman that he used to break into some estate and play in their garden. And she paused and said, oh, that was my estate. <laughs> and that was the end of the conversation. <laughs> but the point is, my father did like to talk to strangers. And he, um, 
he embodied one of the principles of the book, which is he did not expect a conversation with a stranger to yield much about the stranger. In other words, he could talk for an hour with gardening, about gardening with Michael Caine and never discover that Michael Caine was a famous actor. And is that because talking about gardening is a form of small talk or is it the opposite? Is it that talking about gardening is so deeply interesting to the gardeners that <laughs> that you can have a deep, substantive, meaningful conversation. It never comes up. You know, what do you do for a living? Or, no, it's a function. You know, you've, you've lost your hair since Alfie. Or, well, it's very English to have a subject that allows you to avoid all intimacy. Like right? the weather. Like the weather or gardening. Right. But also it's something to do genuinely a, f a wonderful fact about my father, which is I think he understood that if you spend too much time gathering information on the person you're talking to, you're only going to find ways of alienating yourself from that person. So my father- The was, more you know, the less yeah, you don't connected want to you will be. Yeah, you don't want to discover what English. you don't have in common with them. Uh -huh. So he was famous. So my father was a, you know, he was a mathematics PhD whose head was somewhere up here. But he was always falling into conversation with people. Like his, he was great friends with our neighbor who probably had a seventh grade education. And it's because they never got past- they would also talk about gardening in person now. <laughs> um, but I sort of love that sort of, you know, that I love that. And that's sort of part of where I end up in the book, which is that we expect too, way too much from these conversations. And they're dangerous when they get too aggressive. But in your book, you've got lots and lots of examples of conversations that go awry. Yeah. In fact, there's almost, there are very few conversations in the whole book other than your father's conversation with the unnamed Englishman. Mm -hmm. um, that go okay at all. So yeah. I, I'm sort of wondering, do you agree with your father's idea that, you know, maybe we should just talk less to, to everybody, you know, or at least less just to, to people whom we don't have immediate and, and total not, connection to, or, or is the whole point that we should talk to them, but not expect very much from the conversation? I think the, the whole point is that we should talk to them and not expect very much from the conversation. In other words, I've become- Then why talk at all? No, because you can have a meaningful conversation in the absence of drawing aggressive conclusions about the nature of the person you're talking to. Hmm. So I think this is, I mean, the, the real issue in the book, and the reason the book begins and ends with the story of Sandra Bland, um, is that the thing about that encounter, she's pulled over by the side of the road in small town, Texas, by a police officer. And the thing that leads that encounter to end in tragedy is that the police officer takes it upon himself to reach enormously consequential conclusions about Sandra Bland in the absence, both in the space of 30 seconds and in the absence of any real evidence at all, right? That's what, what is wrong with what he does, among other things, is that he's in such a hurry and his ambitions are so enormous. Mm -hmm. He really thinks, he, he pulls her over because he thinks there is a chance. He pulls her over because she's out of state, black, and driving a Hyundai. That's, and there are policies covering at least two of those things officially and one of them unofficially. Yeah, that yeah. there are. And he has been trained to pull over people who are, um, who are, uh, you know, the, the phrase, the, what, the, the, the lovely in quotation marks phrase that law enforcement uses, um, curiosity ticklers. So she has violated, she has, she has activated several of his curiosity ticklers by virtue of um, she And he had noticed her while she was turning out of the campus of Prairie uh, View University. And he noticed her, notices that while she's on university territory, she um, rolls through a stop sign. So she has rolled to a stop sign. She's black. She's 28. She's driving a Hyundai. She's got Chicago plates. And he says, that's four curiosity ticklers. And so he contrives a reason to pull her over. In fact, he, he sort of creates the reason, Creates right? the reason by... <laughs> driving up fast behind her, which leads her to get out of his way. And then she doesn't use her turn signal. He has his pretext. And then he creates a fantasy about this person he's pulled over. And the fantasy is that she's dangerous. And uh, this comes up later in the, you know, in the course of the investigation, he gives this deposition. And what's weird about, actually about the deposition is that even though the case itself, when it happened, attracted attention, you know, around the world, as far as I can find, there was like one minor story in the Austin Statesman about the deposition, and that was it. The deposition was completely ignored, even though the deposition is like deeply revealing. Deeply revealing, and you realize what a what a you know, like I said, like the 
this, this bizarre fantasy that he creates in that moment, that she is dangerous and harboring some deep criminal intent on the basis of the flimsiest of and most misleading of, of cues. And it's that that I think is problematic and that we need to sort of um, zero in on. One of the fascinating things, though, about your treatment of that whole deposition is that you believe him when he says he thought she was dangerous. I do. You can imagine that other readers might be more skeptical and say, you know, and you consider this view in the, in the book, in passing at least, no, he was just a racist. Mm-hmm. And not only in an individual way, but also in the production of the structural racism of the cops and the, yeah. and the stop and frisk and so forth, or rather the, the pulling over of, uh, of yeah. supposed traffic violations. And then later in a deposition under oath, he wanted to explain why he stopped her and he made up these reasons after the fact. Yeah. But you don't think that. You buy what he's saying and that's partly because you're, I don't want to say this, but maybe you're defaulting to truth in believing his account. Um, I, I've, I am defaulting to truth. I have two that's reasons. That's a magic thing in the book, defaulting yeah. to truth and you're not supposed to do it. Yeah. I have, well, you are supposed to do it, but let me explain you're why. You're built to do it. You're built to do it. Let me explain why I believe him when he says that. Uh, two reasons. Um, one is that if you look at his, so we have from the Texas Highway Patrol has on file, you can find it, um, a complete record of every traffic stop he ever made as a member of the, of the police force. And what you see when you look at that is that him stopping Sandra Bland on the flimsiest of pretexts was not an anomaly. It was what he did. Yes. He was, I mean, he is the, and, and further, right, you can say, you can say that he is not a, by the standards of what we want, what the Texas Highway Patrol wants a cop to be, he's not a bad cop. He's an ideal cop. They are trained to stop people on the flimsiest of pretext. And he did exactly as he was trained to do. His whole career was stopping people on flimsy pretexts, right? So it, it's like, if you look at the list of reasons of, first of all, you look at the number of people he stopped. He's stopping, he's jumping out of his car four, five, six times an hour. And to put this in context, if you go back 25 years and you do a similar search of what police officers did, you will discover they never got out of their car. If you were a police officer in small town, Texas in 1975, you got out of your car to get donuts. Like you did not, the last thing you did was pull over people who are driving down a road for no, that the whole notion of policing was different. You sat in your car and you waited for a call after some, and you reacted to something that happened. This is a whole new way of policing. And he was the perfect embodiment of this new philosophy. He stopped, and you look at the list, he's stopping people for, you know, the light above their license plate is out. And he pulls you over. Why? Because he thinks that maybe there may be reason to believe that if you're the kind of person who didn't attend to the broken bulb above your license plate, then you're also the kind of person who is smuggling drugs, right? That's the theory. He never found anything, right? If you look at his long time on the force, the man stops, you know, dozens upon dozens of people. And the sum total of all of that frenzied activity is like once he stops a kid who is, uh, I think has a token amount of marijuana in his car. He may have got a gun once, but basically he's coming up with nothing. So, so reason number one for me to believe him is that he is so, what he does with Sandra Bland is so a part of who he is. Mm -hmm. There's not an expression of some kind of of uh, latent prejudice. It is an expression of his training as a police officer. Um, secondly, uh, it's not inconsistent to say that he's scared of her because he's a racist. In fact, it's entirely consistent. That's why he's scared of her because she's actually bigger than he is and she's black and that makes it, and because he assumes that big black people are scary, it makes it really easy for him to construct a scenario where she's a threatening criminal and he is uh, trying to you know, uphold law and order. So. The racist argument and the argument that she's scary are consistent, not inconsistent. Um, and thirdly, there are actual things that he does. He approaches her for the first time on the passenger side, which is what you do when you're not scared. And then he goes back to his car. And then the second time he goes up, um, after he sits in his car and he constructs this fantasy, he approaches her on the driver's side. And that's the only reason you would do that on a highway traffic stop. So he's exposed himself to the traffic by approaching on the driver's side is if you think the person has a gun. Right. Because you can defend yourself if you approach on the driver's side and you, you are a target if you approach on the passenger side. So that, all those things make me think 
Uh, yeah, the man's terrified. I mean, and by the way, the, the way we train police officers in the present day is to be terrified, right? Like that, the only way, the, the reason people who deny that think that he's making up a cover story are wholly ignorant of the totally perverse way modern law enforcement works, right? He's trained to be terrified. Of course he's terrified. So <laughs> I'm feeling a little terrified. Um, that was a very effective uh, invocation of the, of the experience. When you think about people who talk to strangers for a living, yeah, cops are an example. And it's particularly mm -hmm. egregious because after all, he's talked to all those people that he stopped. Yeah. And he's tried to make some determination about mm -hmm. how, how dangerous they are. But another kind of person, there are two other kinds of people who immediately leap to my mind when I think about people who talk to strangers. One is salespeople. Yeah. Because you're often selling to, to strangers. Mm -hmm. And there, it's sort of an interesting counterexample because there you're doing everything you can to comprehend them in order to produce an effective mm -hmm. sale. Yeah. And I, I just wonder whether, I, don't, I have no idea, I wonder if salespeople do better at talking to strangers insofar as they're trying to make a sale. And in fact, to the extent this comes up in your book, it's from the other side. It's from the buyer, as it were. Mm -hmm. You know, the person who believes what the salesman is, <laughs> the, the pitch the salesman is saying. Yeah. Um, and then the other group of people who also come up in the book are anthropologists. Yeah. And yeah. you take us into, the, into Central America, mm -hmm. um, a very intrepid pair of anthropologists. To, to actually Indonesia. Uh, to yes. Indonesia, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, who go to a village where people drink alcohol that turns out to be, is it 190? Oh, that story. Uh, yes. Yeah, I'm mixing up my anthropology stories. Yes, there's several anthropologists. There's stories. several anthropologists there is in the one. book. Yes, you are. I'm talking about the drunk anthropologists. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yes. Yeah. You know, all of Malcolm's, I mean, as, as you can guess, and as you will know, as soon as you read this book, it's a classically great read and every, you know, anecdote could have a name. And this is the adventure of the Drunken the drunken anthropologist, yes. Every, it's like every, you could play a game where every Malcolm Godwell anecdote could be turned into the name of a Sherlock Holmes story. <laughs> that's, that's right. You know. Um, so here, these anthropologists, they do really well mm -hmm. at talking to strangers, it seems, at least in your, yeah. I'm sure not all anthropologists do do well at that. Yeah. But that's what they're trying to do. So I wonder, is there something we could learn from either salesmen or anthropologists yes. about how to go about talking so to strangers? The, end of the salesman part is really interesting because what is it that a successful salesperson does? They, the first thing they do before they size up the person they're trying to sell to is they sell themselves, right? They establish their credibility, their friendliness, their interests, their, um, you know, I once in one of my earlier books, I- Kind of uh, like when you go to sell a book. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I had a profile of the number one car salesman in America, who is this guy in um, rural New Jersey. And he was really, really fascinating. And he was, his record was, I mean, he was like an order of magnitude better than anybody else. And he was the kind of most, there was nothing, he wasn't a fast talking slick guy. He was the opposite. He was this guy, when you met him, he just oozed authenticity. And he impressed upon, before he even sized you up, he impressed upon you the fact that he was a straight shooting, normal guy, who was not trying to hustle you. On the contrary, he just cared about, you know, serving your interests. And I think it was genuine. I think he actually genuinely believed that that's what he was doing. But well, there's the, two kinds of genuine. There's he genuinely believed that's what he was doing. And there's that is genuinely what he was doing. I think that's genuinely what he was doing. Because he pointed out- He was just doing people the favor of selling them well, a new no, car. Well, no, because he made this really interesting point, which is that if you're a car salesman, and I love the fact that we've now detoured into car salesmen, but his, he says- the thing about the mistake, he was, I asked him to talk about what are the mistakes your peers make. So why, did, why does everyone else do such a bad job of selling cars and you are so good? And he said, well, the mistake they make is that they think it's all about the person in front of them. But he said, no, 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 success in this business is about referrals. He's like, a successful sale for me is whether I don't sell the person in front of me a car, but they like me so much that they go home and when their friends are buying a car, they say, oh, you should go talk to that guy. He was really nice. That's where so it my volume, success- It was a volume business yes, for him. You want, you want, and that person might tell four people and you might sell three cars because of that one success. So the other rule he had was you can never dismiss a, so anyone who comes into the dealership deserves your full attention. So he never judged anyone. If you were a, a 
a seven-year-old kid, he would treat you as seriously as if you were, you know, a millionaire. Why? Because you don't know who the seven-year-old kid's father or uncle or grandfather is. So he would spend his whole afternoon with a seven-year-old kid. I thought it was kind of fascinating. But the point was, he begins with establishing his own credibility. And this is, of course, exactly what Brian Insinia in the, the cop in the Sandra Bland case does not do. He behaves without regard for his own credibility. In fact, he, he blows his credibility before she even meets him by, by pulling her over on a nonsensical traffic stop. And the idea that we have trained police officers to behave in such a way that their credibility is destroyed before they even meet the person they're pulling over is incredible, right? We should be taking the people training cops and sending them to meet with this car salesman and he could teach them something. Right? You, so, I mean, it's funny because the, <clears throat> I spent a lot of time in a book with these uh, two brilliant criminologists who have rethought a lot of uh, uh, David Weisberg and, and Larry Sherman. And they think endlessly about this. It's like the first task of a police officer in dealing with um, uh, any member of the public is to establish their um, credibility and integrity. But you can't do anything before you do that. Whereas presumably what a lot of people think is that they should establish their authority. Yes, first. exactly. And that is, there's a huge difference between those two, those two things. Now, when you talk though about um, the salesman who established his authority, mm-hmm. that's also what your spies did in the book. Yeah. Right, they were really good at establishing their authority. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of spies in the book in case you're interested. There's a lot of spies. There are a lot of really cool spies. Yeah. Um, and... So you establish authority and then the other person will believe whatever you say. Do you think people believe what the salesman said or they discounted what he was saying, but they needed to buy a car and they figured he was a nice guy and they might as well buy the car from him? No, I think that, uh, I think they were, they are, when they enter a dealership, they are desperate to find someone who uh, seems to have their best interest at heart. There's, I mean, I think, I mean, his argument was that people enter a car dealership and their uh, expectations are really, really low. They've had so many bad experiences over the years. Mm-hmm. And that just by being a normal human being, he can sell more cars than anyone else in America. Um, <laughs> it's a stunning thought. <laughs> a stunning thought. But on spy, spies, so since writing the book, I've, the more I think about this, the more of a radical position I take on spies. Okay, good. Let's get, let's get, um, into, the, let's get into some spy radicalism. So spies... And there's a, I was reading this article in one of the, you know, there are all these journals devoted to spies mm-hmm. um, where academic, and virtually everyone who writes in it are like, they're all ex-CIA officers or ex-MI6 officers. And there, there was one really, um, really brilliant essay I read recently by a guy who said, you know, if you take the long view and you see that, well, during the Cold War, we had Aldrich Ames and um, Robert Hansen and a couple of other ones but if you look at all of the damage they did, they basically gave, gave away all of our key secrets. It only took a few, but they gave away all of the secrets. Yeah, because they, yeah. they, they were really high up, both yeah. in the CIA and the FBI. And on the flip side, we had a couple of people who come over from the Soviet side who basically gave away all their key secrets. Mm-hmm. And he said, so it was a wash in the end. Like we, the Cold War itself. The cold, like the Cold War itself. And he's like, so this guy was like, who is himself a spy guy? He's like, looking at the evidence of the Cold War, you should... We should just give up. Like we should just have saved ourselves billions of dollars by by shutting down all of the covert covert espionage operations of the CIA. Like we ended up no further ahead than we than we would have been if we had had no spies at all. And I tell a story in the book. So you need a treaty for that, though, right? Because it has to be bilateral. Doesn't work if we give up our spies and they don't give up their spies. It has to be a you have to sign a treaty. We have to we have total disclosure of everything. Total disclosure, which everyone would then lie about. But. if, but if we don't, no, 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 you don't have to do it. It can be, no, no, think about this. Unilaterally. It, it can be done unilaterally because we're shutting, if we shut down our spy service, mm-hmm. then there is no spy service for them to infiltrate, right? We have removed the pos- <laughs> right? The, but they can no spy from on the, the non-spies. No, they no, can no. spy on the non-spies. There's no, what are they going to do? So the Soviets send a spy to like, go and spy in the Department of Agriculture. Like, go ahead. <laughs> it's all yours. Oh, like, go right in. No, there's no more. Well, there is the Defense Department. I mean, I like this. I like, I like where you're going here. And maybe the Defense Department. <laughs> okay, the so there is, but there is like the Defense Department. You I know. know, but mostly what the Soviets are doing <laughs> is spying on our spies and we're spying on their right. spies. Although I guess the Chinese do it differently because they 
are mostly trying to steal technology. Technology and secrets. Yeah. Okay, so let's bracket Sorry, let's technology bracket, and, let's that, and yeah. secrets. But it, it's clear that an awful lot of this activity is just a merry-go-round. Yes. And we should have just jump off. merry-go-round. Yeah. And billions and billions and billions of dollars were spent on the merry-go-round, right? Yes. So this is, I, I found like for a spy to say this, and like I tell a story in, of how I open the book with a story of how the, there's a, a defector comes over from Cuba and calls together all the leading CIA people running our Cuban espionage operations. It says, um, not one, but not two and not three, but every single spy you have in Cuba right now is a double agent working for Castro. The whole thing, like, so like, it was pointless. Why bother? Shut, you know, we had an operation in Havana inside the, whatever it was, the Swiss embassy for years and years and years. The whole thing was a wash. Like, it, it, worse than a wash. But so, okay, wash. let me, let me try to, up the radicalism here. Yeah. So you can imagine someone saying, well, this is true of all arms races, yeah. right? Each side goes like crazy. And yeah. there is a theory that the point that the, the way the United States quote unquote won the Cold War was just by outspending the Soviets. So then there yeah. was a point. Yeah. We just yeah. waste more money than you do. And since we can afford to, we win. Yeah. Um, depressing, but maybe it's true. But if you ask the Defense Department people, they would say, what do you mean intelligence services are expensive? They're really cheap. Like you can have an entire intelligence service of thousands and thousands of spies for the price of like one fighter bomber. Yes. That, the equipment is really expensive, yeah. but humans are relatively, relatively inexpensive. Yeah. And they don't actually have, you know, the James Bond, you know, flying cars. I mean, there, there is no queue, strictly speaking. Although, you know, after, yes, you are right. Although I will say that, remember after Snowden and um, uh, gives away the, the store at the NSA, there was all this hand-wringing about how much it was going to cost to, and the numbers were, I mean, they were not trivial. They were talking about many, many, many billions of dollars, which again raised the point, like, if this thing that you've constructed over many, many years, costing tens of billions of dollars, can be essentially destroyed by one guy working for Dell, not even like some random <laughs> dude yeah. way off in the middle of nowhere, yeah. who is a, a subcontractor for Dell and who... Him, you know, Snowden gets kicked without worked, a college education. Yeah, and he gets he tries to work for the CIA, gets a job because it's like uncle gets him in. Gets kicked out. Why? Because he hacks into the personnel database and changes his job evaluation so he looks good. They discover this. They're like, oh, this guy is a a fraud. B a hacker. In and the movies, C, they would have promoted him. Yeah. <laughs> and C and, and C only got a job because his uncle weighs in. So what does he? Do? They fire him. What does he do? He resurfaces at Dell and gets in again. Like. If this is the system, is there any point to having the system? Like, <laughs> there is this, I, you know, the, there is a point where you have to wonder, and uh, it's funny when you think about it, how many American institutions are in the grip of arms races. I mean, basically what 21st century capitalism is, is a series of, I mean, is, it is a, you start with a marketplace and then you rapidly move to a, uh, an arms race that has no productive function. Coke versus Pepsi. I was going to say Harvard versus Yale, but that would... <laughs> <laughs> maybe, a, maybe a better example, more expensive example. More expensive example, or, yeah. you know, Harvard Deaconess versus, you know, Mount Sinai or some... I mean, they're all of these things, they're all, yeah. they all have the same function, which is they're on the same kind of treadmill and there's no, there's a point at which the spending no longer has any productive function. So the standard, I mean, to the extent there's a standard answer to the question of why do we bother to compete, even though a lot of competition is idiotic and pointless, yeah. usually it's the alternative is that we're colluding. And if we collude, we'll have no incentive to try to do our jobs well. Yeah. I, do you think that's just basically a ridiculous answer? Well, you can compete on things that matter. Um, and what counts? Well, it would be nice, for example, if universities competed on how well they were educating children who needed to be educated, for example. I mean, I mean, that would seem to be <laughs> just throwing it out. We think we are competing <laughs> on that. Like, that's what we tell ourselves. That's the sad thing about it. It may be sad. The institution yeah. that you work for. Yeah. I did hear your, I did hear the podcast about the LSAT. Um, so yeah, yeah, you, yeah. I, I was going to tell you, by the way, I'm, probably most people here have heard that Malcolm's episode about the LSAT. I only give uh, eight hour uh, open oh, you do. book, open everything. Yeah, I've never done the the, the oh, good for you. Three hour thing. It's because it seems, as you say, it seems. Will you reveal idiotic. to us what your LSAT score was? Will I reveal to you what my LSAT <laughs> yes. score was? I got a lower score on the LSAT than I ever got on any other standardized test. Okay, this is that. Is that good? 
No. (laughs) (laughs) Were you you as impressed by its idiocy as I was? Deeply impressed by the idiocy. Yeah. Yeah. The the logic games, I just thought were, and truth to be told, they bear no relationship to anything that one ever does in the law. Yeah. Leaving the speed out of it. The speed, yeah. Um, For for those of you who didn't listen, the episode was all about, I didn't understand why why they had time limits. Yeah. Um, And then when I went to the people who would make an administrative LSAT and ask them that question, they, uh, it's it, like no one had ever asked. They didn't them. have a good answer. Well, that, yeah. no, no, it was worse than that. It was like, it never occurred to him that that was, that would be an issue. Like, so they- Although I think of, you got the right answer. I mean, you buried the answer a little bit in the episode, but you pointed out that law school exams are typically timed and they measure whether the LSAT is any good by seeing if it predicts, predicts first year grades. So, so it, that they are locked it's, in. So it's really the law school's fault. It's not the fault of the exam. It's really yeah. the fault of the law schools. But it was weird to find someone who was engaged in doing something and was radically incurious about the reasons for doing that thing, right? That's, That's only weird to you, Malcolm. Like mo- not, most of the world is people doing whatever they do every day and not giving a hoot about what it is that they're... Yeah, no, it's, it's yeah. funny. And the other thing... Um, no, I won't. I was going to say something <laughs> disparaging, but I won't. You can, um, say, you, you, you can be disparaging. <laughs> no, I, the other thing, this is totally um, tangential and parenthetical, is that, so you have an institution which is making, uh, constructing these tests and administering them and has been doing so for 70 years. And by the way, it makes a lot of money doing it. And it, you know, no one's particularly challenging their right to do so. Um, and they don't serve any real productive function. So the only reason to to persist as if they're having fun, right? <laughs> so that was, I was looking, I was like, okay, so I can think of you no know, Behind rash- the closed door, they would all be chortling <laughs> to themselves. No, no, no. I, so my thought was the only, I can't, there's no reason for you guys to be doing what you're doing unless you wake up in the morning with joy in your heart and think, I'm going to come up with some really like killer questions Nasty today. Question. And I but, didn't even, but so I didn't even example, get that sense. But this example actually underscores what I was, sort of the question I was raising a, a couple minutes ago, namely, so, the LSDAS, the law school, I don't even know what that all stands for, they have no competition, right? I mean, as you say, they're doing it for fun. I mean, in fact, yeah. in recent years, a couple of law schools, including mine, have started experimenting by saying, well, you could take the GRE. Yeah, I love you it. Know, that's, a note. that's what they call an experiment at Harvard I mean, Law School. Ridiculous, Instead of taking right? one ridiculous standardized test, you can take another, another ridiculous exactly. standardized test. <laughs> <laughs> one which does not have logic games on it, lest we, uh, lest we forget. But yeah. I mean, the justification, if there is one for that, mm-hmm. it would only be if you have two different tests, then maybe that would create some competition and it would lead the people who yeah. make up the tests in theory. I mean, this is all in theory yeah. to think about whether, you know, they could do something differently instead of just, as you say, just being out there to yeah. have fun. Not that having fun is such a bad motive. I no, mean, no. I, if that's I had why thought, I do my job. If I had thought they were having fun, I would have called the whole thing off and did not attack them. <laughs> right. But, um, right. but they appeared not to be having fun. They, appeared not they committed fun. the sin of not having fun. Yeah. Unlike the drunken anthropologists. Yes, yes, yes. Who I, did have fun. Yeah. Um, I was fascinated by the, the chapter about alcohol here. Mm-hmm. There was tons, I mean, there's always stuff in every chapter that, that I don't know. But in that chapter, I feel like I didn't know anything. Like everything I thought about alcohol consumption mm-hmm. was wrong. Um, can you tell the story of the drunken anthropologists? I can't. I can't. So... Um, that chapter, uh, began because I was looking for, since I was interested in this question of conversations between strangers going awry, naturally I thought that, uh, campus sexual assault would be a reasonable place to start. Like that's a, that seems to be, albeit a highly controversial, highly controversial, but part, some part of that problem is about that, that clearly conversations are going badly awry. Right. So I began to go and talk to people who studied this problem. And there are many of them. And all of them, five minutes into the conversation, would say, well, you know, this is about alcohol. They all said this. And I realized, oh, okay, so maybe I should rethink and start talking, thinking about more about alcohol. Um, uh, and uh, that's interesting on, another, on a number of um, levels, uh, in part because if you read books about campus assault, there are books written about it that don't mention alcohol which is quite incredible. You rarely do you see this gap between the way an issue is discussed in public and the way an issue is discussed by the research community. Um, Anyway, so it led to this long question about, okay, so what happens when you're drunk? Um, That uh, 
that would that might impair the the um the conversation that's being had between two strangers at a party or what have you and the common position is that what happens when you drink is you become disinhibited which is what i thought yes that you simply the can the normal the 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 kind of surface constraints on your um personality melt away and some kind of purer version of yourself emerges in vino veritas right for um, better or worse for better yes. uh in fact the the, the contemporary position on alcohol now is on drunkenness is very different from that. And that is that drunkenness causes myopia. And what that means is that when you're drunk, what happens is your higher cognitive functions start to shut down and you're capable only of making sense of things in the immediate term that are right in front of you. And that's a significant, it sounds like a subtle difference, but it's significant because your personality is, a f your normal personality is a function of you of a careful weighing of short-term versus long-term consequences, right? That Noah, you are who you are because you're not just thinking about what's happening now. You're thinking about tomorrow and next week. And if you say something rude or stupid or offensive to me right now, you know it'll matter tomorrow, and right? Yeah. But if you're drunk, that falls away. And what's left is not Noah anymore because Noah is someone who thinks about tomorrow. What's left is the version of Noah that doesn't think about tomorrow, which is not Noah, right? And to the extent that we- Or that, it's a version of Noah that doesn't think about tomorrow. Yes, but that's not, that's not a version you approve of. True, but it's a separate question. I think we can discuss it without a, without a view of like, which is the essential Noah? Oh, no, no, no. I would say it's the non-essential Noah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Isn't your non-essential self the portion of yourself that you would not uh, willingly choose to be? Well, that would be super nice if that were true, but it might be the other way around, right? I mean, <laughs> it, it could be that the portion of myself that I don't want to be is actually the essential me and that the me who goes, all the work goes into producing the public me is the inessential me. Do you want to lie on the couch and <laughs> should we? I mean, I'm, I'm getting to that. Believe me, I'm, I'm getting to, I'm going to get to psychoanalysis and talking to strangers, I promise you. Um, okay, regardless of whether... Drunken Noah is the anti-Noah or simply altered Noah. It's not typical Noah. Right. And it's not ideal Noah. Yes. Right. So if this version, if drunken, the drunken version of ourselves is this um, radically altered, less than optimal version, then that's hugely problematic, right? Um, and it makes it hard to understand, for example, how consent can ever be appropriate when people are very drunk because... The notion of consent assumes that you're, it, is your self, it is your essential self that's consenting, not your altered mm -hmm. self. Um, but also it means that I think that we have, um, uh, also it raises the question of whether tra the, the transformed drunken self is someone who is much more likely to engage in criminal behavior, mm -hmm. which is, turns out to be true, right? That's what a lot of this sexual assault is about, is that people get very, very drunk thinking that it is a, uh, uh, a, uh, a harmless, um, fun state. And in fact, it's a state that radically increases their chances of being criminal sexual predators, right? On the one side of the equation. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, what, what does this have to do with the drunken anthropologist? Well, a lot of this rethinking of drinking begins in the fifties with all of this anthropological work that starts going around the world and observing that in other parts of the world, drunkenness doesn't look like drunkenness in the United States, right? So if, if drunkenness, the drunkenness is cultural, essentially. Yeah, the drunkenness. So if drunkenness- Not just how often you get drunk, but what you do when you are you drunk. What you do when you get drunk differs dramatically from culture. So these, the, 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 the anthropologists are these two lovely, uh, this couple um, uh, uh, who taught at Brown for many years, they went to Bolivia in the 50s and they observed that this tribe they were living with would get would drink essentially grain alcohol, the, the most potent liquor imaginable. Every Friday night, they would get together as a group and they would get so wasted that like, I mean, they would just drink to, but there was no, uh, uh, no observable pathology. It didn't lead to fights. It didn't lead to, you know, absenteeism from work. It didn't lead to broken marriages. It didn't lead to, and they were like so stunned by this. Like, how could this be? And the answer is it goes to this question of myopia that 
when you are drunk, you are at the mercy of your immediate environment. And they had constructed an immediate environment that was entirely benign, more than benign, that was socially positive. So when they got wasted- social drunkenness. Yeah, they were surrounded by like happy things. They sang songs and they held hands and it was all lovely. It was like a rave, but with grain alcohol. It was like a rave with grain. Yes, exactly. Um, If that's what frat parties were, we would not have sexual assault, right? But frat parties are the opposite. They are places where- the thing that is immediately in front of this, of these, you know, wasted 18 year olds is not something that brings out their best self. It is rather something that brings out in many cases, their worst self. The fact that we allow this to happen on campuses and we are seemingly oblivious to its consequences enrages me. But right? is, the answer, is the answer to engage in some radical cultural experiment to change the, the cultural norms? Because I mean, that's the thing about anthropologists, right? They go all over the world, they mm-hmm. see incredible things, and they report back that what we think is intuitive isn't intuitive. Yeah. But their explanation tends to be a teeny bit different from the explanations that, that often come up in other work of other social scientists. They tend to say, it's a different culture. So those yeah. folks had put a lot of time and effort into figuring out a culture. Maybe it was luck, maybe it wasn't, where yeah. getting drunk actually gave them some kind of communal solidarity. Mm-hmm. And so maybe we should be trying to produce a culture like that. Yeah, I agree. I think we should be. And I, th- I, think, I think the idea of, so some people have been trying to produce a culture around drinking. It's just that the culture that has been produced around drinking on campuses in the last 25 years is the most monstrously maladaptive culture imaginable. Yes, yes. So we know you can produce powerful cultures around it, but it, we have surrendered that task to people who do not have the best interests of 19-year-old college students at heart. Um, and it's time we we went back and took back that particular culture. It is quite possible to have fun at a party without getting blackout drunk, right? At the very least, it makes sense, you know, the, in, telling the, in retelling the story of the Stanford rape case, there are many things that's, that strike you. One is that here is a party at Stanford where there is a lot of very young people are getting very, very drunk and there appear to be no adults anywhere, no sober people present. How is that? Good idea. Like here's a college that has, not like there are a lack of resources at Stanford for this kind of thing. Um, when I was at, you know, getting drunk in college at the University of Toronto in the 1980s, there were always sober adults at our parties. It's just, it was the way it was constructed. And so whenever something got out of hand, the sober adult came in and made sure it didn't go too far. I, I suspect that's why the, the, the number of these incredibly problematic incidents in my college years was small. I never knew of a single person who went to the hospital suffering from alcohol poisoning. I never knew of a single person although who got blackout re- drunk. Although I have read, this is maybe about the early 90s, that can't be so different from the late 80s, studies suggesting that the rate of sexual assault on campuses was actually not so different then um, than it is now. That is to say, outrageously, high. shockingly, yeah. terribly high. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, all I know is that, the, yeah, the the... Gathering of statistics in this area is an incredibly difficult, yes. simply because so much goes unreported. Yeah. Um, all I can say for certain is that our best efforts at the moment um, suggest the sexual assault problem is way, way, way worse than people yeah. imagine. I wanted to, I promised one question about, uh, broadly speaking, psychoanalysis. So here's the question. Mm-hmm. You talk a lot in the book about default to truth as something that we do and maybe something that we're hardwired to do. Yeah. Um, so, you know, your spies are being spies and they say, oh, I'm not a spy. And then people say, oh, I guess you're not a spy because we're, yeah. you know, it's, it's pro-social to believe people unless you have really yeah. strong evidence not to. How do you distinguish that from a situation where we kind of know that you're lying, but we really don't want to think that? where we're actually eager on some level. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it could be on different levels, but it could actually be on a, you know, a subconscious level. Yeah. We're eager to believe you because it would be just too terrible to believe the truth that my coworker in the next cubicle, who's an award-winning, you know, Cuba analyst is actually, mm-hmm. you know, palling around personally with Fidel Castro, you know, on yeah. odd weekends. Yeah. It's, it's devastating to think that. I mean, in all of your cases about the spies, you always have the person saying, oh my God, we were just devastated to discover this. Yeah. So how do you distinguish a kind of idea that we're just built to believe people, so we believe people, from the idea that, no, it's not that. It's that we kind of know they're lying on some level, but we, but we know and we don't know at the same time. 
because mm-hmm. we just really, really, really don't want to be disillusioned. Well, I, there's many ways to answer that. I would say that, so a lot of my ideas in this book about why we do such a bad job of knowing when others are lying come from the work of this psychologist, Tim Levine. And Levine, Levine's answer would be that real liars, so there's a, in the psychological literature, there's a distinction between, there's a big argument about what is a lie. And they don't count as lies, um, untruths that are told with the intent of preserving social relationships right. are not considered lies. What we would call white lies. White lies. Yeah. But the category of white lie is quite large. Yes. Um, so a true lie is a lie that's told deliberately and malicious, maliciously with the intent of severing or rupturing social relationships. The number of, the percentage of the population who tells large numbers of true lies is really, really small. So the How can notion- you reconcile that with the statistics on the number of people who cheat on their spouses? I mean, that by depending on the numbers you look at, that's, you know, between a third and 60% of, you know, of Americans, well, depending but, on which studies you believe. That's a lot of people. And they're all telling, unless you think that's a white lie. <laughs> now, so is cheating on your, I mean, I'm talking about a, um, uh, the cheating on this, on your, spouse is an act of, an act of deception, yeah. but it may not involve an actual lie. In other words, you, I'm talking about the moment when the two people confront each other and uh, one of the, one party says, are you having an affair? And the other party says, I'm not. Okay. So that's, now. In, I don't know what percentage includes that moment. Yeah. I'm more interested in that act where they confront each other. I'm not, you know, you're talking about the commission of asocial acts or maybe highly social acts, but Social acts outside of overly social, acts, overly yeah. social acts, but um, but no, deeply malicious acts meant to destroy. So made off, made off level kinds of lies are really, really rare. Um, so to add to, By I way, agree with we, you. How do we know that? Uh, a lot of so there is a there is a healthy literature in psychology in trying to figure this question out. Yeah. Um, you you know it's hard to tell, but you know we do know that because. You know what percentage of of investment advisors are uh, are running massive Ponzi schemes? It's actually quite small, right? I mean, there's a lot of <laughs> like, where's your money in? Like in a sock? Are, are you this? No, no, it's in an index fund. Because yeah, exactly. The Wall Street Journal is not lying. I mean, Wait. the index the index is the index, so you know how you're. You know, well, the person running the index fund you're saying is not lying. You don't even need a person. It's just an index. I know, but... So therefore, it's not lying to you. Whereas a human being with, a, with, a, you know, with an investment strategy could, could be. The nature of a Ponzi scheme is that it, it, it eventually... eventually yeah. yes. So yes. we do know that there aren't 10 Madoffs yeah. out there. Yeah. There, there, you know, there is yeah, yeah. a small number. And similarly, when we look in, you know, what is the incident, uh, incidence of, since I talk about pedophilia in this book, how many, you know, what is the real incidence of pedophilia in the population? So someone who is systematically deceiving those around him in, in, the, in, the, in the name of pursuing a deviant sexual agenda. It's actually, it's quite small. It's like two, three percent that who- That's small? Well, two, three percent. Now we're not saying that these are people who actively pursue their pedophilia, uh-huh. but who have those kinds of inclinations. But that, that's quite small, sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> two or three people out of a hundred. Oh, that's nothing. It seems like a lot of people to me. I don't know. No, maybe but, it's because I have kids. I don't know. <laughs> but if you, well, but if you have as a baseline position that most people you deal with are not pedophiles, that's mm-hmm. not an irrational position. No, it's not irrational, right. not by any stretch. So of you can send your kids yeah. yes. to Boy yeah, Scouts, the world. Right. and you shouldn't lie awake at night worrying about whether they're Boy Scouts. Trust leaders, but pedophile. verify. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's yeah. right. Um, anyway, so the, so I don't think that your position is wrong, but I would say that it's, it is probably rational to want to believe that the person you're dealing with is telling the truth because most people actually are telling the truth. That's Levine's argument. I think that's, there's something. And it's a, it's a rationalist argument, presumably built into some evolutionary theory, right? It's rational. Yeah. And so we've yeah. evolved this, yeah. this tendency. So, you know, one of the reasons why so many- And, and I guess my worry is, I'm not sure that covers the cases, many of which you write about, mm-hmm. where there's like stuff staring the person in the face you know, the person who suspects the spy and says, gee, I suspect this spy and goes mm-hmm. and asks the questions and the spy gives a lame answer. And mm-hmm. the person's like, okay, I believe you. 
And yeah. your your answer is, you know, this kind of evolutionary default of truth. But my instinct, at least on reading those anecdotes, was that's not enough to explain that because the person's doubts were already raised. It's really that they just didn't want to face it. They didn't want to take on board the, yeah. the painful but, reality. You know, spies, think about spies as someone who has consumed huge numbers of real and imaginary spy stories. But if you just look at the real ones, spies never get caught. Like, show me a case where the first day that Joe Hill decided to turn coat and spy for the Soviet Union, even though he was a high-ranking CIA officer, he was caught by counterintelligence. Never, ever happens. If you do like- I, mean, I wouldn't want to write a book about it, it'd be kind of short. <laughs> no, if you talk to these counterintelligence officers about their record in uncovering spies, first of all, most counterintelligence officers never catch any spies. And to the extent they do, they catch them like after 10 years. Like think about how long Aldrich Ames, possibly the worst spy this country ever had, uh, the man is a buffoon. He's a drunken, his performance reviews are like terrible. He starts getting huge amounts of money from the Soviets for his spying. And what does he do? He spends it wildly and shows up at Langley in like a Jaguar with his teeth capped and wearing a fancy, you know, Brioni suit. And like, there, nobody, nobody looks askance. So like, I'm sorry, at a certain point, you and have they to made believe- him president of the United- I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> At a certain point, you have to believe that this is something that is, I just read this, this book about Klaus Fuchs. Do you know the, so Klaus Fuchs, the, the, he's the one who betrays the atomic bomb to the Soviet Union. I hadn't realized that, A, Klaus Fuchs, I thought he was a kind of minor figure in Los Alamos. He's not, he's like a, he's one of the greatest yeah. nuclear physicists of his generation. And also his ties to the communists go way back. He's a, He's a communist from the get-go. Which actually a, a good number of the nuclear scientists were, were deeply sympathetic yeah. to the so communists. So it's like, yeah. the, and you know, all kinds of people were like raising their hand and saying, I don't know about Klaus. And like, Klaus they, goes, and then Klaus was at Los Alamos. Where they, they had you on lockdown when they're trying to, and in order to get out of Los Alamos to meet with his Soviet handler, he had to construct these elaborate reasons. Sure enough, like Klaus is always getting in a car, like driving off right. into the desert. And they're like, oh, <laughs> where's Klaus? Oh, I don't know. He's, right. he's going to like, you know, where would you, you're in Los Alamos, where are you going to a nightclub in- I think this you know, supports my theory. I think not your theory. I think this supports the no, theory that people the really theory. wanted to, they really didn't want to believe this about Klaus Fuchs. Of course they didn't want to believe it, but they were, and, but they didn't want to believe it because, in part because most people at Los Alamos were not spies, right? Klaus, it's Klaus and like, it's basically Klaus. I mean, there's like one other guy who's a spy, but maybe someone we don't know about, but most of them not spies, yeah. right? Um, so I want to make sure we ask some of the audience questions. And this is the first question from Tyler from Westfield, New Jersey. And I, this question, uh, I'll tell you why I'm interested in this question. The question says, you're known to be an avid runner. How does running factor into your process as a writer and as a thinker? And the reason I was especially attracted to this question is that I didn't exactly meet you, but the first time I ever saw you was in the Equinox in the West Village when I lived in New York. And there were you know, several rows of treadmills. And in the front row of treadmills in the center was always Malcolm running at like an unimaginable speed. And for a long time, he was by far the fastest person in that gym. And then a uh, early 2000s supermodel, I was trying to figure out which one it was, one of the blonde ones. Was it, she, which one was she it? She was you know? better, is that what you're saying? She was right next to you and she would run right next to you. Really? Uh, at... <laughs> That, now you tell me. <laughs> At super high speed. This happened on more than one occasion. This is like a story about you and your father, like you didn't even notice. Um, and she was like pretty much as fast as, as you are wow. and comparably skinny. Yeah. Um, and so I, I thought to myself, first I thought, my, I didn't know who you were. I was just like, wow, that guy is incredibly fast. Then I was like, that guy's incredibly fast and doesn't notice the girl next to him. <laughs> and then later I found out that it was you. So Here's the question. How does that running factor into your process as a writer and as a thinker, other than making you oblivious to supermodels? <laughs> um, I don't know. I suppose, uh, well, you know, the, um, you know this, how iterative writing is, that um, you never, finding a way to express what you really mean takes forever. Um, and that early, and an awful lot of kind of, what you discover when you write something down is how difficult it is to put your thoughts into words or how difficult it is to know what you think. And so I, I always think that you, you, running is really, among other things, a, a way in which I can simply take time out to ruminate. Um, all writers, I think, have to have some space in their life 
for rumination. Dorothy from Boston. Um, and this is, I don't think it means to be a mean question, but it's a teeny bit mean. Um, when I was on my way over here, I asked my daughter, what happens if I have to ask Malcolm a mean question? And she said, you have to do it as a compliment sandwich. And <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know what that was, but she explained to me. So I wanted to say, Malcolm, this, this yeah. is an amazing book. Yeah. Um, after the aha moment that births a new theory, mm-hmm. how do you avoid confirmation bias mm-hmm. while evidence gathering? And also, great, great shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Did I do it right? Um, well, one answer is to say that all journalism is an expression of confirmation bias. Um, but then- <laughs> That so would is, confirm the bias that yeah, Dorothy holds. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you're, I think, I guess the defense I would say is that uh, unlike other forms of writing, the kind of journalism that I'm a part of is meant to provoke, not convince. That is to say, I'm not, I'm what, I'm, what I'd like to do is to pre- present an argument, maybe an argument that readers haven't seen before, not necessarily because I think I can persuade you to adopt it, or necessarily because I believe the argument is 100% correct, but because I think it's incredibly useful to consider the problem from that angle. So a, an example would be, um, you know, I don't talk a lot, like we, we went over this, I don't talk a lot about race in the case of Sandra Bland. Why? Because it's really useful to think through the problem of what to do about police shootings and put race to the side for a moment, right? That's a good, do I think that race doesn't belong? No, race totally belongs. But it's useful to take a couple hours and set it aside and say, what if I thought about this outside of that, of the, of that particular prism? And that's what, that's what I think um, uh, useful nonfiction does. And so part of the, part of the production of that kind of argument is confirmation bias, happily confirmation bias. Yeah, let's gather all the evidence we can for a particular point of view mm-hmm. and run it by you and see what happens. Yeah, and if you default to truth and believe it, that's your own fault. I mean, you have, you got to read it skeptically, right? I mean, you've got to read skeptically. <laughs> yeah. Um, Nicole from Massachusetts, this is a very Massachusetts question, and it's kind of a deep one. Is Trump derangement syndrome a similar phenomenon to the Belgian Coke crisis? This uh, question requires a great deal of unpacking. Um, the Belgian... Nicole is from Massachusetts. Yes, gotta, Coke gotta crisis was something I did a podcast episode about, was an episode in the 90s or 80s in Belgium where Belgians became convinced... By the way, every time I say the word Belgian, I'm reminded of that great Monty Python episode about they wanted to come up with a nickname for Belgians, remember? And one of them was Sprouts. <laughs> one of them was Flems. And then the winner was Dirty Rotten Belgian Bastards. <laughs> oh, that was like, so, so fantastic. Um, but Belgians became convinced that Coke was um, poisoning them and all these kids got sick. And then it turns out there was nothing Classic conversions. And yeah, it was, yeah. it was just all um, hysteria, a moral panic. Anyway, this person wants to suggest that people, that Trump is somewhat... Trump derangement syndrome, you know, which is, you know, the, you know that phenomenon when... Um, one observes people who, and the, the, the name implies maybe that they're, they shouldn't, but that people just can't stop thinking about Trump and how angry they are about Trump and how concerned oh, they are about yeah. Trump. And it just distorts their whole like, frame of engagement with the world slash gives them great clarity and accuracy depending on whether you're inside the syndrome or outside yeah. the syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Nicole wins. <laughs> She gets a free copy of the, well, she already bought a copy of the book. Um, This is a a serious question Uh and it connects up to um, the fact that this book really is about very serious things. It has, it has all of the fun of a Malcolm Gladwell book, but it's framed framed as an inquiry into one of the deepest, hardest, and most serious questions uh, that that we're facing as a society. And the question is, um, do you think that we as Americans, this is Christina from Boston, have improved in civil dialogue in the years, say, since 9-11, the last almost mm-hmm. two decades? Or have we regressed when it comes to talking to strangers? It's kind of a deep question. Well, in some ways we have uh, regressed in a sense of um, that, you know, we're in a peculiar moment where we're, we're obsessed with each other's differences and not what we have in common. Um, and, you know, in, at other times, other countries 
don't have these kinds of conversations. Canadians don't get together and enumerate all the ways in which they disagree. They do the opposite, right? They talk about things they all share. Um, that's the, the and, they great, do it, and they do it nicely. They do it nicely. The great Canadian project is this endless search for common ground. It's, it, gets, it gets a little tedious at times, but um, this country has but, decided- but, le- but less shooting each other. Less yeah. shooting. This country has decided doesn't want to do that. I guess that would be point number one. But two- S- Slash, we've never done it. Maybe we've never I mean, done to, it. To be, to be yeah. fair. Yeah. But I, you know, to going to back to the theme of this, this book is a lot about misunderstandings that are, that arise from- hasty generalizations about strangers. I'm always struck on Twitter about how, you know, 75% of di- what are classified as disagreements on Twitter are not disagreements, but they are misunderstandings. Yeah. That the, they just people haven't bothered to figure out what the other person is arguing. And or they facilitated just have their, by the medium, which yeah. is designed to make it impossible yeah. for you to explain your argument in any depth. It is astonishing to me what a bad idea Twitter is. Like, if you had... <laughs> it's one of those things, like, in retrospect, like, who... If they were, so like, who thought this was going to end up being, remember there was that golden period of like a year and a half when there were serious people in this country who thought that Twitter was going to save the world from tyranny. And I, I will say, I was a skeptic in that moment. And I, people were so angry with me for not believing in the redemptive power of Twitter. And I was like, I don't know, like, I don't see how, you know, and sure enough, what happens? Turns out Twitter's good for like cat videos. That's useful. But other than but we that- We already had Facebook for that. <laughs> we already had Facebook for that. But it's, it is astonishing to me how like pointless it is. But it is fascinating then that it's, it has the reach that it has. I mean, specifically among people who talk at length for a living, yeah. people who should do the best at going deeper conversationally, at least in principle, yeah. seem to have this deep desire to communicate on Twitter the framework in which all of the things that in theory make them worth listening to are taken away are stripped yeah. away. I mean, it's like, you know, your, your example of, um, in the LSAT podcast, your example of um, speed chess compared to real chess. Yeah. All these people who are actually supposedly writers, you know, scholars, people who think in larger, longer than a sentence or two. And that's who spends a lot of time yelling at each other and misunderstanding each other on Twitter. I, I have no answer for why we have the impulse to do that, but yeah. apparently we do. And distinctively that group of people, because it's not like Twitter has as many users as one of the formats that allows for longer form communication. Yeah, yeah. No, so I don't. I don't get it. It's like the. It's like the id of. It's like the id of people who like to express themselves at length. Is like really that they can sum it up in one sentence, which actually they can't. Yeah, yeah. It it joins along this. I was saying there should be this. Everything, uh, every institution, um, uh, uh, in a kind of functioning society should have a sunset clause, and then. Uh, at the moment of sunset, everyone sits around and should say, well, up or down, good idea. Or do we, should we start over? Like be very, imagine if we hit like, so if we had a sunset clause on, I mentioned uh, higher education before. Yeah. Super useful for us to say in, say in 2025, we all get together and we say, okay, let's start over and see what we come up with, right? We would come up with something very, very different. Yeah. Similarly with Twitter, if we decided in 2025, sh- we're going to shut it down for six months and then have a meeting and figure out what we want, whether we want to replace it or what we would replace it with. We would come up with something very different. There's no reason these things persist long past their, their uh, useful stage. Last question, and it, it connects Canada to the time. Um, when and why was the last time you applied your pull the goalie rule in real life? Uh, this is another reference. I can ask that because, you know, we're almost done here. Uh, I'm pulling the goalie. <laughs> this is another reference to uh, one of my podcasts uh, where I described the work of this hilarious hedge fund guy um, who published a paper on SSRN, world's greatest website, <laughs> about um, when you should, what is the optimal time to pull a goalie in a hockey game if, if you are down a goal? And his answer is like, I forgot what it's like, with six minutes to go. Far, far longer than anyone would yeah, begin to right. imagine. And he does all the math. And, then and no one ever does it that way. No one ever does it that way. Um, but the idea is that you should um, take big risks take big when risks you're way behind. When you're way behind, when all is hopeless. Um, when was the last time I yeah, so took you, a massive unparalleled risk because I was otherwise almost certain to lose? Yeah. That's a really good question. <laughs> it is a good question. Um, Jim from Bridgewater. <laughs> well, no. I should sure. add that you're willing to share. 
<laughs> what about you? Have you ever pulled? <laughs> Have, do you ever? Um, that's a good question. I think. Um, yeah, I think I've I think I've done it in my personal life on multiple occasions. Uh huh. Um, you know, gone for like the big the big risk. Yeah. Um, you know, hoping that it would make things work out. But as we know from the statistics of pulling a goalie, usually what happens is they, they just score a goal on you and it doesn't work out. Yeah, you usually fail. Yeah, so that, um, that would be me. Elizabeth Theranos pulled the goalie, didn't she? I don't so, think Elizabeth Theranos, I don't think Elizabeth, uh, what's her last name of Theranos? Elizabeth. Uh, Holmes. Holmes. Of Theranos. Elizabeth, of Theranos. Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos was playing without a goalie from the very beginning. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is not true. So think about her position. If you think about this rationally, so she had this idea that you could completely take over a huge corner of the healthcare market if you could do reliable diagnoses from a drop of blood. She was, let's say, generously 25% of the way there, right? But we don't, we don't really know yeah. how far she was. And her, her gamble was, I can get to 100%. Her, her undergraduate advisor appeared in the, at least in the documentary and said she was 0% of the way yes, there. Okay, yeah. Because I explained to her that it was impossible. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> and then the other guy got it, the other advisor from Stanford got on and said, but she was a genius, so it was possible. Yeah. So let's say, okay, let's say that she was 15% of the way there. Okay. So she was, in a sense, pulling the goalie. So she was faced with an, an all but impossible task, but there was this little glimmer of hope if she gambled everything that she could pull it off. And if she pulled it off, she would be a mega billionaire. I don't know. I mean, so she chose to play very, very, very long odds. So did Bernie Madoff, according to that theory. Well, no, no. Remember, he could have had the first Ponzi no, scheme that worked. Barry, Bernie Madoff never made an honest attempt to actually uh, invest people's money, right? He was a fraud from the start. Hers was not a fraud from the start. I mean, no one claims that she was, that it was all fictional, that when the, all the, the, the activity going on in her firm was just for show. No, people were trying to solve the problem. It's just the problem was virtually impossible to solve. But there was some little glimmer of, I'm not, I don't mean to, to defend her, um, but I do want to point out- Oh, that you just did. There, <laughs> there is a kind of little sliver of logic to what she was doing. She was classically pulling the goalie. Like she was down by three goals with, you know, deep in the third quarter. And she decided, I'm going to go for broke. I'm going to convince a bunch of rich people to give me lots of money. And I'm going to try and do this thing that, I mean, had she succeeded, she would be right in the, in the Pantheon. Well, none of you has pulled the goalie by coming here tonight. Uh, and uh, you've had a sure thing from the beginning because you bought the book. Uh, and uh, I'm thrilled that you did come and thrilled that Malcolm came and joined us. And I'm really grateful to you, Malcolm, for the conversation. And thank you all for coming. Thank you. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott with engineering by Jason Gambrell and Jason Rostkowski. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. This week, we would also like to give a shout out to the Harvard Bookstore, my home bookstore, for helping organize the conversation between me and Malcolm. I'm Noah Feldman. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. <laughs>